And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist with deep jawbreaker eyes. Red rope hair, gumdrop lips, cotton candy thighs. You're my candy. Welcome everyone to Podcast 26 and to the month of November. We're producing this podcast before the outcome of the presidential race, and so at this time, we don't know who the winner will be. One thing we do know is that whoever becomes president, there'll be a lot of people who think the end of the world has come. So tonight, it's our official End of the World podcast. And to start it off, we have our top six End of the World film picks. Then a mashup of interviews with people involved in the ultimate End of the World radio show, War of the Worlds. Following that, we have a special reimagined version of that same drama. Our version, well, a version, well, the psycho version, some version of the audio drama War of the Worlds, and a couple of other things. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the end of the world. But first, some news everyone can get behind. A celebrity birth. Million, million people are happy, bright, and gay. The bells are ringing in the steeple. It's a public holiday. All the world is so delighted, and the kids are all excited. Cause the stork has brought a son and daughter to Mr. and Mrs. Mickey Mouse. All the mayors and corporations have declared such jubilations. Cause the stork has brought a son and daughter to Mr. and Mrs. Mickey Mouse. Pluto's giving the party, and before the fun begins, he presents the gondola to the father of the twins. Mr. Preacher's eyes are glistening, and he's fixing up for christening, cause the stork has brought a son and daughter to Mr. and Mrs. Mickey Mouse. There's a crowd around the house of Mr. Mickey Mouse. They're cheering, spits the air. Now let's see who is there. I'm Percy Pig, the postman, and I bring the telegram. I'm Charlotte Sheep, and I've come to see the little lambs. Ah. 
I'm Donald Duck, just waiting till my verse I can recite. I'm Henry Horse, and I've brought my band to play all night. I'm Gertie Goat, the gongster, timing all the cars that pass. I'm Bertie Bleak, the donkey. I am a silly ass. But who is this approaching just when all the fun begins? It's Willy Wool, the wicked man. He's come to get the twins. Hello, twins. Nice little twins. Oh, save my uh, son uh, and daughter. Uh, uh, we'll drench this guy with water. Oh, I've got more than I alter. of planned evacuation, and whole cities are paralyzed by fear. The Air Force is standing by with an atom bomb. You can't drop an atom bomb on Chicago. Humankind has been fascinated with the end of the world seemingly since there was humankind. There are stories of it in ancient Babylonian and Judaic literature as well as in the literature of India. The first modern English language story about the end was Mary Shelley's The Last Man, and it was published in 1826. And from there, the literature continued over the decades and really exploded after World War II and, of course, with the coming of the atom bomb. Tonight, we're going to discuss our top six films in this genre. And we're going to begin with James and number six. The number six is a movie entitled Miracle Mile. Steve DeJarnett directed The Miracle Mile. Uh, he also directed Cherry 2000. I don't know if you know that movie. No, I don't know. It was, that was in 1987. Then he went on to do a bunch of film. I mean, I TV rather like he did. He just t- took work at the end because he was doing Lizzie McGuire and oh, and wow. and uh, ER and Flight Twenty Nine Down is a is a show and uh, Alfred Hitchcock presents. He did like a couple of the new ones. Oh, okay, um, but I I don't know if you can say co wrote, but he's one of the writers on Strange Brew. <laughs> oh, nice, <laughs> a genius. So Strange Brew and uh, Miracle Mile <laughs> are his biggest contributions. <laughs> and Lizzie McGuire, if you're into that sort of thing. <laughs> Very nice. Oddly enough, the screenplay was written in 1983. When did the film come out? The film came out in '88, and it was one of those. It was on one of those lists of the insiders vote on what the best newcoming screenplay was. And it was on that list of the top ten 
they call it the blacklist or something now, and there's a hundred of them. But now um, that list was only a hundred, and uh, everybody wanted to do this movie, but they didn't want the ending. And so uh, the guy that yeah. wrote it, and and they didn't want to trust. They wanted to make it big budget, and they didn't want to trust the first time director with the money. So this guy had sold the option, and then he actually bought it back for twenty five thousand dollars of his own money, rewrote it. And then ended up getting the funding from somebody to make the movie himself. And so the budget was 3.7. So he got to direct it? He got to direct it and do everything himself. And he got to keep his ending. Because so, I've seen that movie and it's directed pretty darn well. No, 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 absolutely. $3.7 million was was the budget for it. Wow. And it took eight he, weeks. Even then, that's not much money. Yeah, eight weeks to um, to film. And they filmed it. Uh, it's called Miracle Mile. And it's the name comes from... The Miracle Mile on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah, uh, where all the museums are in there. Correct. And uh, I don't even know if it's true, but uh, my mom always said they call it Miracle Mile because a plane landed there once. <laughs> nice. So, uh, anyways, uh, this is a, a film that starts off uh, with a, a couple meeting for the first time, and they really hit it off, and they decide that they're going to going meet to after his work. No, no, they went on the date, and it's, oh. at the, it's at the La Brea Tar Pits, and then they decide, oh, we like each other so much, we're going to meet each other uh, after you get off your work at your coffee shop. He oversleeps because there's a power outage. He's going to meet her at 12. He rushes over there at 4 a.m. She's not there, but uh, she he leaves a message on her answering machine at, at a payphone, and just as he hangs up, he's about to walk away, and that payphone rings. He thinks it's her, so he picks it up, and the guy on the other line is, he doesn't know exactly, but he the guy's asking for his father. He's obviously called the wrong number, the person on the other line, and he tells in 70 minutes they're going to hit L.A., and i, I got to warn my dad. There's an atomic bomb coming. We're going to have an atomic war, and... You hear in the background people like shoot the guy and then somebody picks up the phone. Forget about everything you just heard and hangs up. And that's really where the movie starts. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I and, saw this uh, when I was at Long Beach College and it, it was a pretty devastating movie. So it's uh, it's all in real time So because they only have 70 minutes until uh, the, the world's going to end. He goes into the coffee shop to you know find out more about the, the girl because he wants to, to save the girl. And he tells everybody in the coffee shop, and most people blow him off, but there just happens to be somebody that has government connections in the coffee shop. She starts calling around, and she finds out that it is real. So she has the ability to charter planes at LAX to get them to a base in, like, Antarctica or something. So they all decide that they're going to go straight there. So they get a, they get the truck from the, the delivery truck. They get in there, and Anthony Edwards goes, Hey, I, you know, let's make a stop by this girl's house. He's like, We're not making any stops. So he makes a deal with them to to meet up, meet up, to wait for him. To, no, to yeah, to meet up at the at the LAX. Well, he goes through all these things and it's all crazy. Watch the movie, but the ending and this is all spoilers, guys. There's spoiler alert. So the ending is is uh, particularly hideous. In in uh, they they don't get to LAX, but they find a guy that that. Uh, Oh yeah, that guy that, comes back. That, that's with a, his helicopter. That's a helicopter, and he promises he'll meet him at the top of the building, and he actually comes back, but he's been shot because <laughs> by now the thing's out in Bedlam's happening in yeah, in Los, Ange- Los Angeles. As they're flying away, the bomb goes off, and the, the electromagnetic pulse uh, shock waves the helicopter, and they fall 
down and they fall into the Labrea Tar Pits, man, and, <laughs> and sink away to their doom. Oh, man. So you can see why the the, the, uh, yeah, they didn't the want movie theaters didn't want that ending. that ending. But it's one of my favorites. So number six is Miracle Mile. That, that man... <laughs> They, these can all be number one because that's brilliant. <laughs> I, and I remember seeing it. And I thought they can't possibly going to be ending this. And they're all, you know, going together and saying, "Oh, we love each other." And I guess we can end this way. And they're sinking into the. Oh yeah, and they're talking about. Well, maybe we'll they'll they'll pull us out of this and we'll be in a museum one day, <laughs> or we'll hit it and we'll be turned into diamonds or something. And they're like, "Okay, we're okay with it." I guess as you slowly suffocate. Yeah, I mean that's the worst oh, part, right? My gosh. Well, very good. Uh, and now we go to number five, and that's mine, and it's Beneath the Planet of the Apes. And this is an end-of-the-world story in, in um, two different ways. First of all, it's sort of a post-apocalyptic film because somehow man has destroyed his society, and of course apes have risen up, just like we saw in the prequel. Well, not the prequel, the original. This is the 1970 uh, sequel to that movie. And in this one... The main actor is James Franciscus, and he plays the uh, character Brent, who's looking for Taylor, you know, the Charlton Heston part. And so he discovers the Planet of the Apes, and this time it's some time warp that throws him back. It's not just because of the, you know, traveling at light speed and you know, having different times on Earth and in space. Um, it was directed by Ted Post, and he directed Hang 'em High and Magnum Force, so he's kind of a hardcore director. And it's written by Paul Den, and he wrote the screenplay for Goldfinger and Murder on the Orient Express. It was pretty successful. It made eighteen million, nineteen million, about, and in today's money, that's about one hundred eighteen million. So, yeah, so that's it's not a giant blockbuster, but it's pretty good money. They had all the same characters except for. Cornelius was played by a different actor because Ronnie McDowell had a different commitment, so he couldn't make it. But So they had another actor, and this actor did an imitation of Ronnie McDowell. It was funny. He would do the line as if it was Ronnie McDowell. So oh, that's crazy. It was interesting to see his take on it. Uh, but Maurice Evans was back as Zayas, and this is an interesting one because sort of an anti-war one. They have the chimps protesting, the gorillas going off to fight in the Forbidden Zone because... They they go looking for Taylor. They think there must be a nest of these intelligent humans, and the the troops sent out keep disappearing. So they think there's this nest, and we must destroy it. So General uh, Ursus, who James Gregory plays, and he's wonderful. He's the, he's the in Barney Miller. He was Inspector uh, Frank Wagner. Anyway, and he's also in the Manchurian Candidate. He's a great actor, and. Um, he was perfect for the apes, you know. The only good human is a dead human. That's right. <laughs> and oh man! And then, of course, there's the wonderful mutants, because that's what's been making all these apes disappear. And in that society, they have all these great character actors, including uh, Victor Bono, which we've had, you know, the Prayer of the Fat Man, absolutely, yeah. another podcast. But not only is it a post-apocalyptic film, it is a true end of the world film because at the end. James Franciscus, and of course, all these will be spoilers. We're going to tell the ending. Um, finds Taylor, uh, Charlton Heston, and he's been captured by the mutant underground people. And uh, they're worshiping now a doomsday bomb. <laughs> and 
At the end, there's a great conflict. The apes come in and the, and the mutants can't stop them because their only weapon is illusions and mind control and the apes' minds they can't work with. They're too primitive or stubborn or something. And uh, so they come in, they kill the mutants and they start pulling down the bomb and they shoot Charlton Heston. And he's sort of like sick of everything. So he reaches up and grabs... <laughs> Uh, there's one of these jewel-looking uh, knob things and pulls it down, and you know that's going to set off the bomb. And I forget the exact words, but I, I'm not sure if it was Orson Welles or Paul Fries, but somebody's voice just says, you know, in a, in a distant uh, edge of the galaxy, a small, insignificant blue planet was snuffed out. <laughs> and, and that's the end. Uh, of course, you can't stop a franchise. When it made that much money, they found some way to continue it. Uh, and, of course, um, Zira and Cornelius, this time as Ronnie McDowell, are thrown back into the past, which happened to be, you know, the 70s. So, All right. That <laughs> anyway. is the past now, too, oddly enough. <laughs> anyway, great movie and, you know, definitely an end of the world. So now we go to number four. Number four is Night of the Comet. <laughs> nice. Hi. I enjoy this film because it, you know, it's a, it's, it's definitely a cult classic. It's, you don't, well, I don't think of, and I think now in retrospect, I think people do think of movies as being B films, uh, because it wasn't really the, that's not really the, uh, the, you know, you think of B films in the, in, in the, the old, in, in the old yeah, movies, black right? And white films. Right. But, uh, really, you know, they, they treated this like, <laughs> well, <laughs> the, all the horror and sci fi films. Yeah. In are really general. the new, you know, the original Nightmare, not Nightmare on Elm Street, but, uh, you know, Friday the 13th is like a B-movie kind of. And yeah. For real, it's just, you know, it's low budget. It's how much money they put in. Low budget. Basically. So, and this was one of them. So this was one of them, but uh, it was uh, it was pretty cool. And it was directed by Tom Eberhardt. And he hasn't done a lot of feature films, but the other one of the most famous feature film, and Frank and I will, I think, agree that uh, this is one of our closet favorite movies is Without a Clue. He did Without a Clue? Yes. <laughs> From the? Night of the Comet, the next movie he did was Without a Clue. That is insanity. <laughs> like, how would you even think, yeah, that guy's going to be the director for that movie? No, why would you give him the money to make that film? Without a clue is a is a spoof on on Sherlock Holmes. It's a great one yeah. with Michael Caine and, yeah, yeah. and uh, who's the other ben, ben Kingsley. Ben yeah. Kingsley, and it's a brilliant comedy. And he must have had the lock on the script and the two actors to get that thing made. <laughs> so, anyways, that's a funny thing. And uh, so it, it was written by him as well. It it starred Robert Beltran and Catherine Mary Stewart and Kelly Maroney. And I think the one, the person that's most famous, and it's, it's, it's the the woman. She was played uh, in the Last Starfighter, and some oh, other, that's right. and she's some the other things. So she's the girlfriend in the Last Starfighter. It's funny because in Night of the Comet, they have a video game scene where she's playing the video game at the movie theater, and the movie theater is the El Rey when it was oh, a movie nice. theater. Now yeah. since like 1996, it's it's a it's a venue for. First concerts, yeah, and I've seen you know a few concerts there, and uh, but before it was it was really a, a movie theater, so they have that as as the movie theater she's in. So she uh, there's a big comet, and the comet's got such a big elliptical arc; it's every sixty five million years it comes by Earth. So that's the that's the thing. It's uh, coincidentally sixty five million years ago the dinosaurs all perished. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, as the story goes, everybody's out to watch this thing, to witness the thing. They have a big comet party everywhere. Yeah. So, uh, but she has a boyfriend that's the projectionist in the movie theater, and they're for some reason uh, steel. It's important that the, the movie theaters steel. Uh, it used to be a fire code to have the projection room a, a steel. Okay, because uh, the film was uh, flammable. Yeah, right. So they made that steel. So they they kind of hook up and they don't end up seeing it, and then they fall asleep in a sleeping bag in there. And coincidentally, her sister gets in a fight with her stepmom, and she runs out to the steel shed. So anybody that's <laughs> underneath steel, is yeah, you watch. It doesn't make any sense because they later on you get to find out that there's a, a group of scientists that kind of saw this coming but they opened their ventilation by accident and the fans got the dust in and so it couldn't i don't know why steel somehow protects you from stuff that's air that has to that's be airborne. Yeah, yeah. airborne yeah. <laughs> so basically I wake up in the morning and there's either zombies or people in dust that's it. Because if you're partially hit, you become a zombie. You become a zombie, and you don't have that long to live, you find out. Well, you still like turn to dust. 36 hours at most, and everybody's turning to dust. So it's a quick thing. It's something that I've thought about a lot in zombies. It's like, hey, man, how long are these zombies going to last, man? You just got to wait them out, right? <laughs> or whatever. Well, this actually puts a timeline on it. I haven't seen that many times. So, so she goes home. She finds out everybody's dead, but she finds out that her sister somehow made it. And her sister's... This blonde hair and half the movie she's wearing a cheerleader's outfit and actually is the inspiration for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Really? Yes. <laughs> uh, along with a lot of other things, but that, I mean, it's, that was like, he was like, boom, that's it. If we could get the most, his his idea was to make the... This is Josh Whedon. The, yeah, Josh Whedon, right? The creator of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He was, his idea was to make something like the, the person that would you take the least serious in your life. And have them be a superhero, you know. And so they came up with a blonde named Buffy that was. But he a got the idea while watching that film, huh? Yeah, and then you know just other things of comics and all kinds of stuff. But uh, really, he 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 gives that inspiration to, <laughs> nice. to 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 that movie. So the two of them hook up with a the guy. Uh, they find a radio station that's that's playing music and and uh, a guy's announcing and everything so they drive to the radio station and they find out it's a it's a record it's, oh, it's a, tape. a tape it's a tape he had made it cuz he wanted to to go out and see the so the, he's uh, dust and then uh, another guy Hector uh comes up at the same time to, to for the same reason he hears the radio station and so they 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 meet together and that's the the three Those main are the core people the core people like How did zombie. they end this up? Because I know the scientists get the girls in that, and they want to take them yeah, back. Yeah, so they they get the one the one girl that's like the Buffy character. She she has she has like psoriasis, not psoriasis, but uh, what's the other skin disease or whatever? Just I a minor know. skin irritation kind of thing. So she looks to them like she's been exposed, and so they're gonna like kill her. And the one scientist fake kills her. She just puts her with. With a, and they can uh, let him go. Yeah, and then she she ends up letting her go and like killing herself. But what but, I don't remember is I, I know the scientists don't survive. So they go to the they go to the they go to the scientists' place because because uh, yeah, the, the base the one girl is is uh, the older sister is there. So Hector and and the younger sister go there and and uh, try to rescue try her. to rescue her. And by then, all of them are kind of turning into zombies. And there's two, like a boy and a girl, that they're try- they're gonna brain- make brain dead. So they actually end up saving them too. So they get out. 
they they get out of there and Hector rigs the car with bombs and blows them all up. But but well, what's the outcome? They still so they, gonna, they're still going to die because they're all exposed. No, the like rain comes and washes all the, the <laughs> dust away. The dust away. Okay. <laughs> and so so they're going to survive. So they're going to survive, and the last part is a joke on them being the, the only hope for humanity and they're, they're not going to walk across the street against the, the light because they got to keep some humanity alive. Oh, <laughs> so. All right. That was number four. Now we go to number three. Yes. And this is a, a classic. It's when worlds collide. And it's another one where it's definitely the end of the world because it ends right after, at the end of this film. It was done in 1951. Yeah, It was a big budget movie for that time. It was in Technicolor. It was Paramount Picture. And it was produced by the great George Powell. He did the Time Machine. Uh, he did the War of the Worlds, actually. Um, and he did a lot of puppetoon, little animated, uh, stop-motion animated films and things. And it was directed by uh, Rudolf Maddy. And he was a cinematographer in Europe. And he directed other films here, um, like DOA, which is a cool... Oh, that's a murder cool mystery one, the original a, DOA. And, oh, he did the original. Yeah. yeah, and then branded a Western one. And in this film, astronomers discover that in six months, this rogue planet that they dub Bellus, uh, and it's a wandering one, it's just like the comet, it comes by every so often. And maybe it destroyed the dinosaurs, I'm not sure. But this time, it's going to destroy the Earth. It's, it's going to get hit so it. close. Yeah. It's not going to hit it necessarily, but get so close, it's going to cause all this havoc which would destroy the world, pretty much, and all human life, uh, at least. So there's only a slim hope, because around this planet is a habitable moon, because it's a big, giant planet. And they they could tell, well, this is Earth-like. It, it's We could survive on it. So the only way to do is to get a rocket to it. Uh, so he goes to the UN, and most people don't believe it, and they're they're not taking it seriously. And so he goes away, sort of, what am I going to do? So he decides, I am going to have to build a rocket and just get some people out of here. So he goes and he gets different funds from different people. But um, he finally meets this, uh, I guess, a billionaire, this guy in a wheelchair. And he's an industrialist. And he, he wants to be saved and he believes it. So he puts money behind it. So it's kind of a funny rocket. This is before rockets, of course, were ever made. And so it, the, the way they had this rocket is it, it goes down uh, an incline, like a slide, and then it shoots and up. the slide makes it go up. Like a half slide. And, then they, and then, so the rocket sends it down and then straight up. Like you got to get a little, little sling of a slide to help it up. Um, it's really interesting because uh, of how it treats humans, how they're working together. But only so many of them are going to get to go. And there's more people working on the project that can actually fit in the ship. And at one point, uh, there are all kinds of effects like earthquakes and tidal waves. And so the rest of the world realizes, oh, shoot. And they start working on ships, but the, the scientists know they'll never make it. They're behind. If, if they yeah. would have worked. So all over the world, there's other ships being made. Um, and so at the end... There's a big group of people from the outside that break in and want to, you know, get on the ship. And the people, because part of it was a lottery or whatever, so the scientists that work on building it or engineers, they riot. And so they're all going to come and try to get on and throw people off. And some just want to destroy it. So it's havoc. And they're going to go. They all get on the ship. They get ready. And then 
the head scientist, he decides he's not going to go. He's going to let the younger people live. And then he gets the guy in the wheelchair <laughs> and makes it so he can't go on. Going like, what? Because I'm a crippled old guy. I can't get on. I paid for this thing. And he's stuck on Earth to be destroyed. <laughs> and they make it like it's a good thing because he was very cranky and bitter man. Do they make it to the planet or do you They know? do. They go off in the rocket and they have this, uh, well, supposedly this matte painting. But the guy did a sketch, basically this small sketch for the matte painting he was going to make. They didn't have any money. They ran out. So they just had to use the sketch. But it looks great. But it wasn't what it was meant to be, and it wasn't very large. They really had to... They had a big budget movie, and it's technicolor. You can't figure out how to I do it. I don't know. But how it, much could it possibly be to just do a, a, a bad painting? I'm not sure. Or maybe it was a time thing. Yeah, it must have been a time But anyway, thing. so the the world is destroyed. They have a lot of great effects of how the world's destroyed, mm-hmm. and, and also the natural disasters that happened before. And even though it was a sketch, it was kind of beautiful. I remember as a kid, I thought, this is cool. I, I know it's a painting, but it looks awesome. Yeah. So, anyway. So they're going to be able to live there? and Yeah, and, and whatever space load of people can do. <laughs> of course, they're going to have to go with this, uh, watch it as it destroys planet after planet because they're hooked to the planet destroyer <laughs> as its moon. Nice. Anyway, and then, of course, you know, I hope it goes around suns because as soon as it goes outside <laughs> away from the sun where it's going to be cold they're all going to die but somehow that that works out i'm not quite sure yeah they can build fire or whatever who knows anyway now we're at number two number two is la jete <laughs> la jete it's a french film <laughs> oh my we're getting uppity here at sisg all right um it's funny because it is a movie that I, I took French cinema, and it's the one French cinema class that I was I missed, and uh, I did, picked other f- film for the final or whatever, so I didn't actually end up seeing it, but I always knew about it, and had I saw it, I would have been saw a great movie. It's only 30 minutes long. It's like 28 minutes long, and uh, it's Chris Marker is the director, and he is part of... It's funny because they have like a sub movement of the French New Wave. Yeah, and these they were called the Left Bank. Okay, uh, the the Left Bank filmmakers and and uh, Truffaut and Godard were like the the main New Wave guy. You know that was yeah. the those those were the the everyone you know, heard the, of their the, names. You know the head guys. They made more money. They made more things. They were like more movie for movie sake guys they okay. were like you know and, they, and these guys were like this is a, like a thing of art that we're doing or you know whatever the left bank guys you know left bank guys so they, he made this film and the film is almost entirely just like a slideshow although they do things like pull in and out and do the Ken Burns thing where they're okay. actually showing stuff in different ah, angles was that the first film that did that I, have, I have no idea but it's That's the first interesting. Okay. the first film, film that you've uh, seen yeah, in in uh, so La Jete is means the jetty, and it's the jetty is uh, a term that they use for an observation deck. Y- you know, uh, at, at the airport. Oh, okay. They're, they're, you know, just so they have an observation place for to look at the planes. So this little kid, his parents take him there because they they like they that hey, was like one of the planes. things like going to the park or whatever. You go to plane thing. And he sees a man murdered, 
and he actually in conjunctions he's like a beautiful woman and uh, through some kind of weird psychological thing they don't really explain it he gets that image of that woman like emblazoned into his mind uh and so his whole life he 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 has this this image of a woman on that on that observation deck and he just is constantly thinking about it you know during his whole life well world war three happens and there's a end of the world and everybody's slowly dying it's an atomic war and as the story progresses you you find that he's a prisoner and it doesn't say why he's a prisoner he's just a prisoner and these scientists are trying to find a way to save themselves and they do experiments with with time travel and it's not explained it's just that they can do this time travel and they the they do it by way of using your mind and throwing you back in time and the only people that can do it are you know most people it'll destroy their mind but for some reason he because he has this fixation on this on the, they, on the, on the woman. woman they can do experiments and send him back in time to that point and they do a lot of experiments cuz you know to get him used to it and then finally they're able to send him forward and ask for help from the people from the future. Well, he was going to ask for help any way they could get it. Yeah. So he asked for people in the future for help. They actually send a power source back to to with him to to uh to to start civilization over again and it ends up saving everybody's life. He has a whole like romantic interlude with the woman as an as adult, you know, now because he's in the future. Cuz he's he's in the future and he's an adult and they send him back and he keeps on having this experience with her. I can't and, imagine how, how you would even understand this with just and, slideshow pictures. Well, and there's a narration the whole time. So it's oh, telling a story. Okay. I apologize. Okay. And then it, what's cool about it is it works perfectly as an English film because all they had to do was narrate it in English. Yeah. And, and, it's, and you don't have to worry about subtitles or they play music in the background, whatever. It doesn't matter because it's all, uh, you know, you can Narration understand it perfectly. Slides, yeah. yeah. So there's a few seconds of video that are on that, that are in it. And it's very subtle. Uh, you can watch it. It's only 28 minutes, so I would recommend it to not give it away. Well, I completely. Think you, I think you've given everything. No, What's no, no, no. But what I'm saying is to not give it a. When I started this, this actually inspired Twelve Monkeys. So oh. the person that he saw, he he gets contacted again by the people in the future, and they're like, "Hey, we we want to bring you and give you a place here." And he's like, "You know what? I'd rather go back and be with this woman." And they send him back to that same port, but they have another guy, and they kill him. And he, so he witnessed his own death when he was a child. <laughs> oh, 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 wow. So, and that that's exactly what happens in, in 12 Monkeys. Yeah. So, anyways, it, it, for for what it is and for how they did it, I, I did anyways. You get engrossed in the film, and it's just a cool story, and... There's a lot of things that don't make sense, like most science fiction, because you just have to fill in the blanks with your mind or not care about them. But uh, it's a really cool film, and it's definitely, it starts after most of the world's already destroyed, so that's why it's the <laughs> end, end of the world. world. And it's the end of the world for him anyway. <laughs> oh, end. absolutely. It's the end of his world. So there you go, number two, French film, La Jetée. All right, well, now we get to number one. And uh, well, this has been my favorite since a ki- it's a kid since I was a kid, and it is one of the ultimate end of the world. It came out of the Cold War, 
And it's Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. And of course, it was produced and directed by Stanley Kubrick. It was 1964. And uh, it's a wonderful farce uh, about the end of the world, basically, and about the dangers of uh, mutual destruction. Uh, it originally, he just wanted to have, he had this vague idea of making a, a movie about a nuclear, a nuclear thriller, basically about the dangers of the end of the world. And then he heard of this book called Red Alert by this man named Peter George. And he read the book and it was great. I don't know how much of it is, uh, you know, in Dr. Strangelove, but he bought the rights to it. And then he had Peter George work with him and they both worked together on a, on a script. But as they were doing the screenplay, Kubrick kept realizing that things get more and more absurd and, and he was had a hard time not making it a comedy. So he just gave in and said, it, it might be easier to tell the story too and go down, be more palatable as a comedy, these hideous ideas. So then he had re uh, read this other book uh, by Terry Southern called The Magic Christian. And he liked that, that guy's sense of humor. So he brought him in to also be one of the co-writers. So that's how the thing came to be. And in this film, I think most people have seen it. It, it takes place, it begins at a United States Air Force uh, base where Brigadier, uh, Brigadier General Jack D. Ripper, he's Sterling Hayden, plays him. He is the commander uh, the Air Force base that has a, a strategic air command bombers, these B-52 uh, bombers with nuclear bombs on them. And he goes insane, basically. And he, and he creates a fake alert and sends the bombers out. And, uh, and so they, you know, the president and everybody get wind of this, of course, and they, they try to call the bombers back. And they get all the bombers, except for a few, that something was wrong with their radios, I think. Anyway, and then some of those get shot down, but there's one that keeps going. And so it's all about uh, this one lone bomber. Is, and is it going to drop a bomb, you know, and start, you know, World War Three? It has a lot of great actors in it. It has Peter Sellers, of course, playing three uh, characters. Um, he's Captain Lionel Mandrake. Uh, which is sort of an exchange, a British exchange officer for some reason, and he, and he's uh, like a number two guy of, uh, of the Brigadier General uh, Jack Ripper, and um, he also plays the president, and he plays Doctor Strangelove, which is you know a, a Nazi scientist that's been brought on, obviously, and he keeps calling the president my viewer on oh, accident. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, and he has like a tick that makes a, the Nazi sign or whatever. Yes, and his wheelchair is always going out of whack. I don't know how much of Peter Sellers stuff was just him ad libbing because that would be him. Uh, anyway, and of course George C. Scott's there as uh, General Buck uh, uh, Turgeson and um, old wonderful Slim Pickens, Major T.J. King Kong. And all kinds of different actors are in this film. And the guy in a plane, man. James, James Earl Jones. Oh, James Earl Jones is in there, too. They don't give... He's kind of a straight man. They don't really give him much of a, a comedic role. But anyway, there's a lot of great lines. Of course, there's the, you know, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. And, uh, and then the general defending uh, the program, you know, of... Because of, it was one program where if they... 
They're supposed to shut. I think they have to shut off their radio at one point in case they're trying to get false information. That's why yeah. they can't contact them. And um, I don't think it's quite fair to condemn a whole program because of one single slip up. <laughs> and, and, uh, and of course, uh, Jack uh, Ripper always thinking that they want to take his uh, his essence, vital essence. <laughs> I do not avoid women, Mandrake, but I do deny them my essence. <laughs> and, anyway, he's like talking about the fluoride, fluoride in the water. Yes, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, Slim Pickens, where he goes, well, I've been to two world fairs, a picnic, and a rodeo, and that's the stupidest things I've heard come over these headphones, and <laughs> all kinds of great lines. Of course, at the end, they don't stop the, uh, the bomber, and uh, Slim Pickens, in fact, ride the bomb down. <laughs> like it, like it's a bucking bronco. <laughs> and it explodes, and and before this, they, they have uh, one of the Russian... Uh, I don't know if he's a diplomat or whatever, but they bring him into the war room, and he and at one point he tells them that they have a doomsday device, and if a bomb it it's it will go off automatically to destroy the whole world if they get attacked by a bomb, and and it says why do you keep that secret? What good is a doomsday device if nobody knows you have it? <laughs> and but at the end, it's almost like it doesn't go automatic uh, automatically off because they're all talking about how they're going to build underground societies and somehow survive this, and uh, they're going to build mine get mine shafts, and now there's going to be a mine shaft uh, a mine shaft gap. <laughs> Between the two, and uh, Doctor Strange loves talking about each one of them. How they're going to have to take on so many women to populate the area, and the, you know the new world. And then the Russian goes back and has a little like stopwatch and turns some dials. And it's like he turned on the bomb. So, and then of course they show. I think it's uh, Peter Sellers as Doctor Strange love standing up and saying, "I can walk, my dear." And then the bombs go off, and they play. Uh, um, what song is that? I think we'll meet again someday. <laughs> and they're just showing all these test bombings, basically, footage. Oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah. It, it's my favorite, and I think the greatest of all the end of the worlds. Uh, it's the funniest and uh, the most pointed one, I think. Uh, the scariest. Absolutely. So it, there we have it. Our six end of the world movies. Um for an end of the world podcast. When worlds collide. Written in the stars is a message of doom for this, our world. And now in the most shattering experience the screen has ever given you, Paramount tells what could happen within your lifetime when worlds collide. An astronomer checks and double checks his horrifying discovery. A distant star racing through space toward an inevitable collision with this planet. The United Nations meet in emergency session. All conflicts pale before this threat from another world. If you wait until the danger is visible to the naked eye, it will be too late to escape. High on a mountaintop, an army of scientists work desperately to build this giant rocket, this modern Noah's Ark, to carry a few picked survivors of our doomed civilization to a new life on another world, reaching the heights of self-sacrifice the depths of the animal lust for survival as they fight to be among the few who can be saved. Let's take the ship away from them! Come on! Fighting among themselves, fighting against time, as doomsday is upon them. I think all you scientists are crackpots. Nothing is going to happen. 
when worlds collide, you'll see the most amazing, awe-inspiring scenes ever put on film. The forces of nature unleashed in all their terrifying force. Tremendous tidal waves smashing New York City. The molten fires from the bowels of the earth gushing out to consume our world. On October 30th, 1938, a milestone in radio drama was performed, The War of the Worlds. What follows is a collection of interviews with those who were involved with this work and with its repercussions. One minute to air. Finally, a room with quiet. There's never time for actors to rehearse the script, but plenty of time to change the script. Ugh, it's not fair. They gave Howard Koch a whole six days to write it. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I have ever... Oh, let's try that again. <clears throat> 50 seconds to air. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying Do you thing believe all the changes in this script? They switched the Billmore Hotel to the Park Plaza, the Jersey State Guard to the Jersey Militia. Quiet, I'm learning my script changes. 30 seconds. Do they think a Mercury Theater radio audience is dumb enough to fall for this? Wait a minute. Give me a bite of your sandwich. No, they believed Hitler. Annexed Austria, but they're not going to believe a bunch of phony news bulletins about a war of the worlds. This is 1938. Get your own sandwich. 30 seconds. All right, Benny, all right. Just deal with the orchestra and calm down. Jeepers, quiet, I'm learning my script changes. All right, can you believe it? Right before airtime, it's Benny Herman's fighting with Orson. Orson's yelling treachery. 20 seconds. So what? Orson yells treachery every broadcast. Is that a donut? Hey, pipe down, I'm trying to rehearse my script changes. Treachery! Wherever I turn, I'm surrounded by ignorance, sloth, and indifference. Aye, Orson. Enough melodrama, everyone ready? Ten seconds to air. For this evening's little broadcast, Carl will hand out my new script changes. Oh. I've already learned my changes, Orson. Oh, yes, and I'm switching your part with his. But I just learned... Actors, places, please. Let me hear the Martian heat ray. Excellent. Five, four, three... And now, ladies two, and gentlemen... One... Let's destroy the world. Under the broadcasting system at the affiliated station, present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. West. Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. Well, I wrote the first shows. I wrote the first, the first uh, seven or eight, or no more than that, about ten shows. Uh, the first one or two I, I wrote with Austin because he taught me how to, how to do radio shows. Um, after that, I was sort of general editor, uh, but I, I still wrote most of them. Then when our Mercury season started, uh, this became... There was a time when I never got out of bed because I never had time to get out of bed. So I would lie in bed and write the radio shows, lie in bed and administer the Mercury Theatre, and um, simply because I had no time to get up. He was aware of the sound, the actor fading in and out. We're fading in with the actor and out. We couldn't stand there and look at our script and do a show. We had to be aware of what we were doing in the next scene because we were watching Orson. He could act a scene and direct sound. But he was 
physically, literally a director. He was standing on a podium and directing this. And that's why the similarity between a conductor and Orson always struck me. Then on Sunday, hell broke loose. We started at 8 in the morning and rehearsed like mad all day. Then, as I remember it, we'd have a sort of run-through rehearsal, um, Orson directing it naturally and acting in it and giving the cues, and that would happen probably around noon or one o'clock. Finally, we'd have a, a, a dress rehearsal, and then the great discoveries would be made as to how long or short we were. Uh, this was not as much of a problem as one would think because Orson had an unbelievable capacity for stretching or hurrying shows. I mean, he was such a, a past master of radio that he could add or, or just subtract 15 minutes from an hour show without major difficulty. Once in a while, um, we did have major difficulty. Do you, were you around when uh, Man Who Was Thursday? Well, Man Who Was Thursday was Austin's favorite novel. And so he said, we're going to do Man Who's Thursday. And he said, I don't want any of you, you, Houseman, I don't want your coarse hands touching this work. I shall write this work myself. Wonderful, Austin. Great. So about a week went by. And Austin, have you got, uh, got a script? Can we have a script? No, I'm working on it. Don't, don't bother me. Don't hurry me. This is my thing I'm really fond of. This is my show that I love. Well, we arrived on the Saturday... And there was no show, not a word. He'd not written a word. He'd, he'd, he'd marked a few scenes in pencil. So now we were in, in desperate, and we sat down, and uh, we sort of, uh, with a paste pot and scissors, and Orson choosing his favorite scenes. He knew, the, he knew the play, the book, very, very well. He really loved it. Uh, so we sort of started putting a show together, but um, even that uh, was slow work because Orson was hated to lose anything or to, whether to add anything. And anyhow, we went into the rehearsal. And uh, the whole thing was, we never had a script. It was all sort of patches, pieces of paper stuck together. And we went into the dress rehearsal and we discovered that we were 22 minutes short. <laughs> 22 minutes. Well, that was more than even Orson could handle. And so we had a wonderful idea. I don't know if it was Orson's idea or mine, but what happened is I, while they were sort of doing their rest, I ran down to the library at CBS and I collected... It was, uh, it was the end of the season. We were getting ready to announce our new season. So I rushed down to the library, got all these books. They were books I knew that Orson and I both liked and admired, so I wasn't too worried about that. So I brought up this pile of books... And then we just sat there, and, and we were on the air by this time. And um, I would hand Orson one of these books with the mark, and Orson would read it brilliantly and say, that is the kind of entertainment we're going to give you next season. Next! And then I'd hand him another <laughs> book, and, and he'd, he'd read another passage, and so we filled 22 minutes. And it was a wonderful show, and the network was enchanted. They said, that is a really wonderful trailer. That's the kind of thing we should have more of, that kind of thing. <laughs> Driving home from his father's house in New Jersey on Monday, Koch had less than a week to lay out a Martian invasion. Coming down on the west side of the Hudson River, I suddenly realized, if I'm going to lay out this campaign, I better have a map. So I stopped, I was on the Jersey side of the river, 
and I stopped at a gas station. They gave me a Jersey map. When I got to my apartment, I began work right away. I didn't have much time, and I spread the map out, closed my eyes, put the pencil down, landed on Grover's Mills. I thought, well, there's a good sound, American and uh, real. The, uh, the show itself was, was one of those miracles. Um, I mean, it just happens to be a very, very good script. Uh, and everybody pitched in. I mean, the actors, uh, um, the, the famous story of the man who was playing the reporter who went downstairs and played the um, Hindenburg uh, record over and over and over and then virtually reproduced it in a different context. Strike him head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Ah! Now the whole field's caught up by the woods. The bars, the, the gas tanks, tanks of the automobiles are spreading everywhere. It's coming this way. With the man who was to read the Secretary of the Interior, uh, he really pulled a very fast one on us because he uh, could imitate Roosevelt's voice perfectly. And I don't know to what degree Orson or I or anybody was aware that he was going to use that voice, but he did. And, of course, it was one of the most... Uh, damning and effective things in the show. Citizens of the nation, I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country, nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you, private citizens and public officials, all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action. But the whole atmosphere in that studio was absolutely electric. I mean, everybody suddenly realized that there was a chance to do a wonderful show, and the very similitude of it, of course, was very important, and that was our main preoccupation. And then Orson himself made an enormous contribution because uh, the beginning of that show, you've heard it many times, I'm sure, is very boring. It's supposed to be. That was the whole trick. But Orson emphasized that, and Orson carried that a step much further than we would have had any, the nerve to do anybody, Stuart or anybody else. So that in the beginning, you have these terribly slow scenes and these long pauses and then these Chopin piano solos. And the fact is that by about 13 minutes into the show, um, something had to happen because the show was so boring that it was not possible that a show would be. And then very slowly, it started to accelerate uh, which explains why people believed it, because the fact is that if you accelerate as cleverly as that, as well as that, people don't notice that suddenly you're covering the incidents that would take a day, and you're covering it in five minutes. And uh, that's one of the, the magic things about radio, that you can create that illusion and uh, that suspension of disbelief. And um, Austin was largely contributing to that. Wasn't the War of the Worlds the first encounter you had with censorship, afterward at least? We had no encounter with censorship, really. Well, they told you you couldn't do... Didn't they say you couldn't do that kind of uh, news broadcast business anymore? No, they just told the world they couldn't. They passed laws. Oh, the FCC? Yes, FCC passed laws, but uh, we had a sort of censorship all through the day on our... Because I only raced one day for the shows. 
And all through the day, we had the, the, the CBS censor saying, you can't say Grover's Mills, you must say Grover's Corners. Little things like that, not knowing that they were preparing this time bomb. So we'd made all these little changes very cooperatively and blew the lid over uh, off CVS so they couldn't complain. We did everything they asked. <laughs> I was in the control room and uh, sitting next to the uh, CBS, our supervisor, who's Davidson Taylor, quite a well-known figure later, who ran Columbia uh, Performing Arts. Uh, and he got a call and suddenly got up and left rather precipitately. And then he came back about three minutes later, white as a sheet, said, we've got to stop the show, we've got to stop. Uh, we ran over uh, our first half. Instead of uh, breaking at 30, no, 20, 27, 28 minutes, we ran about 35. And I remember the Dave said, John, you've got to stop the show, you've got to stop it. And I interposed my body between him and Orson and said, no, no, never, never, you can't ruin the show. So he wasn't a terribly strong character and he was not a brutal character. So he sort of stood there helplessly and for about another five minutes we went on until we finished the show. Then as soon as we finished the show, I, I or David or somebody went up to Orson and said, look, you've got to make an explanation because this hell is broken loose. Right? And I can't tell you what, but just make an explanation. So he made his set speech, which was all about Halloween. <laughs> oh, that was our little Halloween joke. And uh, so and so. Uh, but by then, I had calls in the control room from governors of states and uh, not to me, but I mean to the show saying, what is this? Is if, if this is a joke, we're coming down and we're, we're going to punch you in the nose. I mean, this was some governor of Iowa or somewhere. Uh, and then the second half of the show went on. Well, by then, the second half of the show is totally uncontroversial. It's, it's pure H.G. Wells and it's the two last survivors on the earth after the, by accident, they've survived. Um, but by then, of course, everybody was rushing around. Uh, nobody was listening. Uh, every phone began ringing at once and everybody was hysterical. So after about 10, 15 minutes of this, I got somebody in the control room. And I said, hey, would you tell Orson Welles that people are taking this thing seriously and they better put on a disclaimer? And he came back and said, Orson isn't going to break into the program. This gentleman's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's alive and dripping from its rimless lips. It seems that all those quivering pulsate and monster or whatever it is can hardly move. It seems weighed down by possibly gravity or something. The thing's... About 15 minutes after that, I guess, the operator called me panicked. And she said, Hal, it's gotten away from me. I can't handle it. I remember the broadcast. I wasn't listening to it. I remember it very well. I was annoyed by it. William Paley was the founder and president of CBS. I was at home playing cards, and these telephone calls were coming in. And they wouldn't say what they wanted, but they would want to talk to Mr. Paley or whoever was president of CBS. And I'd say, these people are calling up to make some complaints. I get these all the time, and I'm sick and tired of them. And I got this call from my office saying, oh, Mr. Paley, a terrible thing has happened. And uh, there it was, a whole country was bursting wide open. Every light on that board lit. Now, that board was, I would say, almost 
a half block long. Our board lit up when they announced that the, the Martians were coming across the George Washington Bridge. And that's when the excitement started. Some people said, what were the, did I have a chance to see them? What were they like? What did they look like? I figured them little, little peoples. I don't mean foot tall. Um, little peoples, green in color with a flowing hood. Have you seen any Martians? No. They're going over to New York. Night, the sky's alive with their lights, just as if people were still living. Because they were crying and screaming and wanting to know if there if there was a lot of gas, if there was uh, a lot of destruction, were there fires, is there a lot of shooting, are there bodies all around? But people believed it. They really believed it that night. And I think of the ones who were begging us to get connections to their families, to their husbands, to mothers and fathers before the world came to an end so they could just tell them they loved them. At least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in a field east of the village of Grover's Mill. One man told me that people were jumping out of the windows and they were going to kill their families before the Martians could get them. You see, it was not a case of answering a light and connecting them to somebody else. All they wanted was the operator. I was just so concerned that I was going to help, be able to help all these people. And never a thought of getting out of there because my life was in danger. Because I believe part of it was, with the old telephone company uh, training, you were very dedicated to your job. You stayed there through thick or thin. <laughs> a bulletin has handed me, Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. And one lady, probably minutes or many minutes after uh, the onset said they're as far as Chicago now and I thought if they're traveling that fast they're going to be in Missoula before I get off duty. <laughs> I put it on a bar, plugged it in and asked everybody to be quiet. This is a local tavern up the street. If Grover's Mill had lent a note of reality to Howard Koch's play, the War of the Worlds brought a period of intense unreality to the people of Grover's Mill. And the farmers start listening, I can name half of them probably. So immediately Sam Dice says, well gosh, damn, I'm going after my shotgun. Mr. Hall, he had the store. He put his cash register in the car and some food and was taken off to the mountains. The story I got was he took, he took the cash register and the kids and, uh, without the kids and took off without the wife and kids. Now, that's the story I got. And now Hildy and everybody else, everybody's getting a shotgun and they're coming back. And now we're going to Grover's Mills. And I, a young 13-year-old, I also have a shotgun. A lot of people see things which I had never seen before. Hallucinations, no less. Yeah, sure. But it was a pure question of stark, naked fear. Now we get up there, look by the lake at Grover's Mills. There's nothing but a lot of people. No 100-foot marshes, this and that. And at that time, Orson Welles had better not have shown up any place. <laughs> then when it was over, CBS sent dozens of, of uh, house police into the studio. They snatched all the scripts.
and they hustled Orson and me into the um, into some room, some back room, and they kept us there for about half an hour. Then the press was released to us, uh, and they behaved dreadfully. But the press was very sore at radio. Radio had displaced them as the prime news medium, and they were very sore. Uh, so they made the most of it. They would do things like, well, uh, you, you've heard about the, f- the family of five that was killed on the New Jersey highway. Um, have you had any more around the country? And they would all pull things like that. So that we believed for the next two or three hours that we were mass murderers. We were opposite Charlie McCarthy. Not the senator, but the wooden doll. That was the other network. And Roosevelt sent a telegram the next day saying this only goes to prove that all intelligent people are listening to Charlie McCarthy. He said that. I simply don't know. I can't imagine. I mean, I, uh, you must realize that I, when I left the broadcast last night, I... The next day, Wells had some explaining to do. There were reports of a nationwide panic caused by the broadcast. Twenty families from a single block in Newark had fled with towels over their faces to escape the poison gas. Switchboards were jammed. The New York Daily News reported 1,100 phone calls. Of terror at the time you were giving this role, were you aware that terror was going on throughout the nation? Oh, no, of course not. I'm, of course, surprised that a story which has become familiar to children through the medium of comic strips, novels, and adventure stories should have had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. One doesn't believe in the radio audience, but you don't know that they're, whether they're listening or not. You have no idea how many people are listening or what they're thinking. I had every hope that, uh, that the people would be excited as they would be at a melodrama. But radio is new, and we are learning about the effect it has on people. Learned a terrible lesson. Do you think that this will cause uh, the... The question has persisted. Did he do it on purpose? Well, did you know it would have that kind of effect? Only the size was a surprise. My idea was to was to send a lot of the lunatic fringe out. I just didn't know how widespread the fringe was. You mean how little? Yeah. How it wasn't a fringe? Yeah. Because I got the idea from a BBC show that had gone on the year before when a Catholic priest told how some communists had seized London. And a lot of people in London believed it. And I thought that'd be fun to do on a big scale. Let's have it from the outer space. That was how I got the idea. I didn't know that. Yeah. But you claimed afterward to be very innocent about it. Of course I did. They were suing me for $20 million, you know. Of course I claimed. Mm -hmm. The only thing is that they didn't have records of it at the time. And I came out at the end and said, this was Halloween Eve. And this was our little way of soaping your window and saying boo. In other words, admitting malice. Mm. But luckily, uh, they didn't catch that. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I remain, as always, obediently yours.
No one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century that human affairs were being watched from the timeless worlds of space. No one could have dreamed we were being scrutinized as someone with a microscope studies creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. Few men even considered the possibility of life on other planets. And yet, across the gulf of space, minds immeasurably superior to ours regarded this earth with envious eyes. And slowly and surely, they drew their plans against us. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observations and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. Oblong, spreading the ceiling. 
Through this opening, I can see a sprinkling of stars that cast a kind of frosty glow over the intricate mechanism of the huge telescope. The ticking sound you hear is the vibration of the clockwork. Professor Pearson stands directly above me on a small platform, peering through the giant lens. Well, I ask you to be patient, ladies and gentlemen, during any delay that may arise during our interview. Besides the ceaseless watch of the heavens, Professor Pearson may be interrupted by telephone or other communication. During this period, he is in constant touch with the astronomical centers of the world. Professor, may I begin our questions? At any time, Mr. Cook. Professor, would you please tell our radio audience exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope? Nothing unusual at the moment, Mr. Phillips. A red disc swimming in a blue sea. Transverse stripes across the disc. Quite distinct now, because Mars happens to be at the point nearest the Earth, in opposition, as we call it. In your opinion, what do these transverse stripes signify, President? Huh. Not I can assure you, Mr. Phillips. Hey. Although, that's the popular conjecture of those who imagine Mars to be inhabited. From a scientific viewpoint, the stripes are merely the result of atmospheric conditions peculiar to the planet. Then you're quite convinced, as a scientist, that living intelligence as we know it does not exist on Mars? I'd say the chances against it are a thousand to one. And yet, how do you account for these gas eruptions occurring on the surface of the planet at regular intervals? Well, I cannot account for it. By the way, Professor, for the benefit of our listeners, how far is Mars from the Earth? Approximately 40 million miles. <laughs> Well, were you frightened, Mr. Wilmot? Well, I ain't quite sure. I reckon I was 
kind of riled. Well, thank you, Mr. Wilmer. Thank you very much. Yes, you want me to no, that's quite all right. That's plenty. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard Mr. Wilmer's owner of the farm where this thing has fallen. I wish I could convey the atmosphere, the background of this fantastic scene. Hundreds of cars are parked in a field in back of us and the police are trying to rope off the roadway leading into the farm, but it's no use. They're breaking right through. Cars' headlights throw an enormous spotlight on the pit where the objects have buried. Now, some of the more daring stories now are venturing near the edge. Yeah, the cigarettes stand out against the metal sheet. One man wants to touch the thing. He's having an argument with the policeman. Now, the policeman wins. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's something I haven't mentioned in all this excitement, but it's becoming more distinct. Perhaps you've caught it already on your radio. Listen, please. Do you hear it? The curious humming sound that seems to come from inside the object. I'll uh, move the microphone nearer. Here. Now, we're not more than 25 feet away. Uh, can you hear it now? Uh, Professor Pearson? Yes, sir. Uh, can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the thing? Possibly the unequal cooling of its surface. I say, do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? I don't know what to think. The uh, metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. Uh, not found on this earth. Friction with the earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth. And you can see it's cylindrical shape. Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw, and this thing must be hollow. He's moving! Look at that! He's back there! He's back there! Yes, that Keep those things back! He's back there! Keep those idiots back! Something I can see coming out of that black hole through luminous discs. The eyes, it might be a face, might be almost the heavens. Something wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one and another one and another one. They look like tentacles to me. Oh, yeah, I can see the thing's body now. It's large. It's large as a bear. It glistens like wet leather, but that's face. Ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hardly keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and they gleam like a serpent. The mouth is that's kind of V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips. It seems to oh, quiver and pulsate. And the monster or whatever it is can hardly move. It seems weighed down by uh, possibly gravity or something. The thing's rising up now and the crowd falls back. It seems plenty. The most extraordinary experience, ladies and gentlemen, I can can't find words. Well, I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll have to stop the description so I can take a new position. Hold on, will you please? I'll be right back in a minute.
now return you to Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill. Ladies and gentlemen, my aunt. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of the stone wall that joins us at Wilma's Garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole thing. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. More state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted and the professor moves around one side, studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truth. Those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute, something's happening. Hump shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Oh, Lord, they're turning into flames. The whole field caught up by the woods as far as the gas mag plants of the automobiles spreading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. In the meantime, we have a late bulletin from San Diego, California. Professor Indelkoffer, speaking at a dinner of the California Astronomical Society, expressed the opinion that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet. We continue now with our piano interlude. Ladies and gentlemen, I have just been informed that we have finally established communication with an eyewitness of the tragedy. Professor Pearson has been located at a farmhouse near Grover's Mill, where he has established an emergency observation post. As a scientist, he will give you his explanation of the calamity. The next voice you hear will be that of Professor Pearson, brought to you by direct wire. Professor Pearson. Of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at Grover's Mill, I can give you no authoritative information, either as to their nature, their origin, or their purposes here on Earth. Of their destructive instrument, I might venture some conjectural explanation. For want of a better term, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as a heat ray. All too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. It's my guess that in some way they are able to generate an intense heat in a chamber practically absolute non this intense heat they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition, much as the mirror of a lighthouse projects a beam of light. And that is my conjecture of the origin of the heat ray. Thank you, Professor Pitt. Ladies and gentlemen, here is a bulletin from Trenton. It is a brief statement informing us that the charred body of Carl Phillips 
has been identified in the Trenton Hospital. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle which took place tonight at Grover Mills has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by an army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns pitted against a single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars. 120 known survivors. The rest strewn over the battle area from Grover's Mill to Plainsboro, crushed and trampled to death under the metal feet of the monster, or burned to cinders by its heat ray. The monster is now in control of the middle section of New Jersey and has affected the state through its center. Communication lines are down from Pennsylvania to the Atlantic Ocean. Railroad tracks are torn and service from New York to Philadelphia discontinued except routing some of the trains through Allerton and Phoenixville. Highways to the north, south, and west are clogged with frantic human traffic. Police and army reserves are unable to control the mad flight. By morning, the fugitives will have swelled Philadelphia, Camden, and Trenton. It is estimated to twice their normal population. Martial law prevails throughout New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. Bulletins too numerous to read are piling up in the studio here. We're informed that the central portion of New Jersey is blacked out from radio communication due to the effect of the heat ray upon power lines and electrical equipment. Here is a special bullet in New York. Cables have been received from English, French, and German scientific bodies offering assistance. Astronomers report continued gas outbursts at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The majority voiced the opinion that the enemy will be reinforced by additional rocket machines. There have been several attempts made to locate Professor Pearson of Princeton, who has observed Martians at close range. It is feared he was lost in the recent battle. Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report three Martian machines visible above treetops, moving north toward Somerville with population seeing ahead of them. The heat ray is not in use, although advancing at express train speed, invaders pick their way carefully. They seem to be making a conscious effort to avoid destruction of cities and countryside, wherever they stop to uproot power lines, bridges, and railroad tracks. Their apparent objective is to crush resistance, paralyze communication, and disorganize human society. Here is a bulletin from Baskin Ridge, New Jersey. Coon hunters have stumbled on a second cylinder, similar to the first, embedded in the Great Swamp, 20 miles south of Morristown. Army field pieces are proceeding from Newark to blow up the second invading unit before the cylinder can be opened in the fighting machine rig. They are taking up a position in the foothills of Watchung Mountains. Another, another, another boatman from Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report enemy machines now three number, increasing speed northward, kicking over houses and trees in their evident haste to form a conjunction with their allies south of Marstown. Machines also sighted by telephone operator east of Middlesex within 10 miles of Plainfield. Here's a boatman from Winston Field, Long Island. A fleet of army bombers carrying heavy explosives flying north in pursuit of enemy. Scouting planes act as guides. They keep the speeding enemy in sight. Just a moment, please. The bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as Martians approach. Estimated in the last two hours, three million people have moved out along the roads to the north. Hutchison River Parkway is still kept open for motor traffic. Avoid bridges to Long Island, hopelessly jammed. 
All communication with Jersey Shore closed ten minutes ago. No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, Air Force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. People are holding service here below us in the cathedral. Now I look down the harbor, all, all manner of boats overloaded with fleeing population pulling out from docks. Streets are all jammed. Noise and crowds like New Year's Eve in the city. Wait a minute, the, the enemy is now inside above the Palisades. Five, five great machines. First one is crossing the river. I can see it from here, waiting, waiting the Hudson like a man waiting through a brook. A bulletin is handed me. Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. One outside of Buffalo, one in Chicago, St. Louis. Seem to be time and space. Now the first machine reaches the shore. He. Stands watching, looking over the city. Steel cowlish head is even with his skyscrapers. He waits for the others. They rise like a line of new towers on the city's west side. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. People in the street see it now. They're running toward the East River, thousands of them, dropping in like rats. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They, they're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. 5th Avenue. A uh, hundred yards away. It's...
As I set down these notes on paper, I'm obsessed by the thought that I may be the last living man on Earth. I've been hiding in this empty house near Grover's Mill, a small island of daylight cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. All that happened before the arrival of these monstrous creatures in the world now seems part of another life. A life that has no continuity with the present. Furtive existence of the lonely derelict who pencils these words on the back of some astronomical notes bearing the signature of Richard Pearson. Look down at my blackened hand. Try to connect them with a professor who lives at Princeton and who on the night of October 20th glimpsed through his telescope an orange splash of light on a distant planet. My wife, my colleagues, my students, my books, my observatory, my... my world. Where are they? Did they ever exist? Am I Richard Pearson? What day is it? Do days exist without calendars? Does time pass when there are no human hands left to wind the clocks? Writing down my daily life, I tell myself I shall preserve human history between the dark covers of this little book that was meant to record the movements of the stars. But to write, I must live, and to live, I must eat. Find moldy bread in the kitchen and an orange not too spoiled to swallow. Keep watch at the window. Time to time, I catch sight of a Martian above the black smoke. Smoke still holds the house in its black coil, but thanks there's a hissing sound, and suddenly I see a Martian mounted on his machine, spraying the air with a jet of steam as if to dissipate the smoke. I watch in a corner as his huge metal legs nearly brush against the house. Exhausted by terror, I fall asleep. Morning. Sun streams in the window. Black cloud of gas is lifted, and the scorched meadows to the north look as though a black snowstorm had passed over them. I venture from the house. I make my way to a road, no traffic. Here and there, a wrecked car, baggage overturned, a blackened skeleton. Push on north. For some reason, I feel safer trailing these monsters than running away from them. And I keep a careful watch. I've seen the Martians feed. Should one of their machines appear over the top of trees, I'm ready to fling myself flat on the earth. Come to a chestnut tree. October. Chestnuts are ripe. Fill my pockets. Just keep alive. Two days I wander in a vague northerly direction through a desolate world. Finally, I notice a living creature. A small red squirrel in a beech tree. I stare at him and wonder. He stares back at me. I believe at that moment the animal and I shared the same emotion. The joy of finding another living being. Push on north, I find dead cows in a brackish field and beyond the charred ruins of a dairy in a silo. Main standing guard over the wasteland like a lighthouse. Deserted by the sea. Stride the silo, purchase a weathercock. The arrow points north. 
course. Next day, I come to a city. City vaguely familiar in its contours, yet its buildings strangely dwarfed and leveled off as if a giant had sliced off its highest towers with a capricious sweep of his end. Reached the outskirts, I found Newark. Newark, undemolished but humbled by some whim of the advancing Martians. Presently, with an odd feeling of being watched, I caught sight of something crouching in a doorway. I made a step towards it. Rose up and became a man. A man armed with a large knife. Stop! Where do you come from? I come from... from many places. A long time ago, from Princeton. Princeton, huh? Near Grover's Mill. Yes. Grover's Mill. <laughs> There's no food here. This is my country. All this end of town down the river. There's only food for one. Which way are you going? I don't know. I guess I'm looking for people. Hey, what was that? Did you hear something just then? No. Only a bird. Live bird. You get to know that birds have shadows these days. Hey, we're in the open here. Let's crawl in this doorway here and talk. Have you seen any Martians? No. They're going over to New York. Night, the sky's alive with their lights, just as if people were still living. By daylight, you can't see them. Five days ago, a couple of them carried something big across the flats from the airport. I think they're learning how to fly. Fly? Yeah, fly. Then it's all over with humanity. Stranger, there's still you and I. Two of us left. They got themselves in solid. They wrecked the greatest country in the world. Those green stars, they're probably falling somewhere every night. They've only lost one machine. There isn't anything to do. We're done. We're licked. Where were you? You're in a uniform. Yeah, what's left of it. I was in the militia. National Guard. <laughs> That's good. There wasn't any war. Any more than there's war between men and ants. Yes, but we're eatable ants. I found that out. What'll they do to us? I thought it all out. Right now, we're caught as we're wanted. The Martian only has to go a few miles to get a crowd on the run. They won't keep on doing that. They'll begin catching us systematic-like, keeping the best and storing us in cages and things. They haven't begun on us yet. Not begun? Not begun. All that's happened so far is because we don't have sense enough to keep quiet. Bothering them with guns and such stuff and losing our heads and rushing off in crowds. Oh, instead of our rushing around blind, we got to fix ourselves up. Fix ourselves up according to the way things are now. Cities, nations, civilization, progress. Yes, but if that's so... What is there to live for? Well, there won't be any more concerts for a million years or so, and no nice little dinners at restaurants. If it's amusement you're after, I guess the game's up. What is there left? Life, that's what. I want to live. Yeah, and so do you. We're not going to be exterminated. And I don't mean to be caught either. Tamed and fattened and bred like an ox. What are you going to do? I'm going on. Right under their feet. I got a plan. We men, as men, 
We're finished. We don't know enough. We got to learn plenty before we got a chance. We've got to live and keep free while we learn, see? I've thought it all out, see? Don't tell me the rest. Well, it isn't all of us that are made for wild beasts. That's what it got to be. That's what it got to be. That's why I watched you. Watched you. All those little office workers that used to live in these houses, they'd be no good. They haven't any stuff in them. Run. Run off to work. I've seen hundreds of them running to catch their commuters train in the morning. Afraid they could can if they didn't. Running back at night. Afraid they wouldn't be in time for dinner. Lives insured and a little invested in case of accidents. Yeah, and on Sundays, worried about the hereafter. Martians, they'll be a godsend for those guys. Nice roomy cages. Good food, careful breeding, no worries. Yeah, after a week or so of chasing around the fields on empty stomachs, they'll come and be glad to be caught. You've thought it all out, haven't you? Sure, you bet I have. That isn't all. These Martians are going to make pets of someone. Train them to do tricks. Who knows, get sentimental over the pet boy who grew up and had to be killed. Yeah, and some maybe. They'll train to hunt us. Oh, no, it's impossible. Yes, they will. There's men who do it gladly. One of them ever comes after me, why? In the meantime, you and I and others like us, where are we to live when the Martians own the Earth? I got it all figured out. To live underground. I've been thinking about the sewers. Under New York, there are miles and miles of them. The main ones, they're big enough for anybody. And there's cellars, vaults. Underground storerooms, railway tunnels, subways. Begin to see, huh? We'll get a bunch of strong men together. No weaklings. That rubbish, out. As you meant me to go. All right. Give you a chance, didn't I? Won't quarrel about that. Go on. Well, we got to make safe places for us to stay in, see? Get all the books we can. Science books. That's where men like you come in, see? We raid the museums. We'll even spy on the Martians. May not be so much we have to learn before... Listen. Just imagine this. Four or five of their own fighting machines suddenly start off. Heat rays right and left. Not a Martian in them. Not a Martian in them, see? But men. Men who've learned the way how. May even be in our time. Gee... Imagine having one of them lovely things with its heat ray wide and free. We'd turn it on Martians. We'd turn it on men. We'd bring everybody down on their knees. That's your plan. Yeah. You. Me. A few more of us. We'd own the world. I see. Hey. Hey, what's the matter? Where are you going? Not to your world. Bye, stranger. Well, after parting with the artilleryman, I came at last to the Holland Tunnel, entered that silent tube, anxious to know the fate of the great city on the other side of the Hudson. Cautiously, I came out of the tunnel and made my way up Canal Street. Reached 14th Street, and there again were black powder and several bodies and an evil, ominous smell from the gratings of the cellars of some of the houses. I wandered up through the 30s and 40s, Stood alone on Times Square. Caught sight of a lean dog running down 7th Avenue with a piece of dark brown meat in his jaws and a pack of starving mongrels at his heels. 
made a wide circle around me, though he feared I might prove a fresh competitor. Walked up Broadway in the direction of that... that strange powder, that silent shop windows, displaying their mute wares to empty sidewalks. Past the Capitol Theater, silent, dark. Past a shooting gallery where a row of empty guns faced an arrested line of wooden ducks. Near Columbus Circle, I noticed models of 1939 motor cars in the showrooms facing empty streets. Over the top of the General Motors building, I watched a flock of black birds circling in the sky. Hurried on. Suddenly, I caught sight of the hood of a Martian machine standing somewhere in Central Park, gleaming in the late afternoon sun. An insane idea. I, I, I rushed recklessly across Columbus Circle and into the park. I, I climbed a small hill above the pond at 60th Street, and from there I could see, standing in a silent row along the mall, 19 of those great metal titans, their cowls empty, their steel arms hanging listlessly by their sides. I looked in vain for the monsters that inhabit those machines. Suddenly, my eyes were attracted to the immense flock of black birds that hovered directly below me. They circled to the ground. And there before my eyes, stark and silent, lay the Martians with the hungry birds pecking and tearing brown shreds of flesh from their dead bodies. Later, when their bodies were examined in laboratories, it was found that they were killed by the putrefactive and disease bacteria against which their systems were unprepared. Slain, after all, man's defenses had failed. And the humblest thing that God, his wisdom, has put upon this earth. Before the cylinder fell, there was general persuasion that through all the deep of space, no life existed beyond the petty surface of our minute sphere. Now we see further, dim and wonderful is the vision I've conjured up in my mind of life spreading slowly from this little seedbed of the solar system throughout the inanimate vastnesses of sidereal space. But a remote dream, maybe. Maybe that the destruction of the Martians is only a reprieve to them and not to us. The future ordained, perhaps. Ah, strange it now seems to sit in my peaceful study at Princeton, writing down this last chapter of the record, begun at a deserted farm in Grover's Mill. Strange to watch children playing in the streets. Strange to see young people strolling on the green where the new spring grass heals the last black scars of a bruised earth. Strange to watch the sightseers Enter the museum where the dissembled parts of a Martian machine are kept on public view. Strange when I recall the time when I first saw it. Bright, clean-cut, hard, and silent. Under the dawn of that last great day.
This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. Out of character, to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. Well, that ends our special End of the World podcast. Before we go, though, Uncle Frank has one more selection for us. In 1940, H.G. Wells and Orson Wells happened to be in the city of San Antonio at the same time. Orson to address the United States Brewers Association and H.G. to deliver a town hall forum address. Local radio station KTSA took advantage of their proximity to bring the two great men together. We go out with that radio interview that was the product of their meeting. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Charles C. Shaw speaking. KTSA is honored this evening by the presence in our studios of two great men, the Honorable H.G. Wells, world-famous British historian, author, and student of world affairs, and Mr. Orson Wells, the genius of stage, screen, and radio. This is the first time that Mr. H.G. Wells and Mr. Orson Wells have appeared together. In fact, they met for the first time only yesterday here in San Antonio. But this is not the first time that their names have been linked. Two years ago, Mr. Orson Welles adapted Mr. H.G. Wells' book, War of the Worlds, for radio purposes, and you know the rest. Revising the story somewhat, Mr. Orson Welles depicted an invasion of the United States by men from Mars. Although he explained it numerous times during the program that it was fictitious, the country at large was frightened almost out of its wits. Men called radio stations offering to enlist against the Martians. Others were panic-stricken. The realism of the production, frightening though it was, was a tribute to Mr. Orson Welles' genius. And thus the name of Wells, H-G-W-E-L-L-S and Orson W-E-L-L-E-S, became linked. Mr. H.G. Wells, in the opinion of many, is the world's most famous man of letters. He has come to San Antonio to address the United States Brewers Association, and Mr. Orson Wells is here for a town hall forum address Wednesday. In this meeting of great minds, I feel rather inconspicuous, and the less I have to say, the better you listeners will like it. But first... Could I interest you, gentlemen, in a discussion of Mr. Orson Welles' broadcast of Mr. H.G. Wells' book, The War of the World? Are you turning the meeting over to us, sir? I am for the moment. <laughs> He's turning it over to us. Well, I've had uh, uh, a series of the most delightful experiences seemed to, since I came to America. But the best thing that has happened so far is meeting my little namesake here, Orson. I find him the most delightful uh, uh, carrier. He carries my name in an extra E that I hope he'll drop sooner or later. <laughs> <laughs> See, no sense in it. And uh, I've uh, known his work before he made this sensational Halloween uh, spree. Are you sure there was such a panic in America, or wasn't it your Halloween fun? <laughs> I think that's the nicest thing that a, mm. that a, a, 
a man from England could possibly say about the men from Mars. Well, yes, uh, uh, Mr. Hitler made a good deal of sport of it, you know, and sp actually spoke of it in the great Munich speech, you know. Mm. And there were floats he, in Nazi parades. Not much else to say. That's right. Not <laughs> <laughs> much else to say. <clears throat> and it's supposed to show the corrupt condition and decadent uh, uh, state of affairs in democracies that the War of the World went over as well as it did. I, I think it's very nice of Mr. Wells to say that uh, not only I didn't mean it, but the American people didn't mean it. That was our impression in England. We had articles about it, and people said, have you never heard of Halloween in America when everybody pretends to see ghosts? <laughs> yes. Mm. Now, before we get away from this microphone, tell me about this film of yours that you've been producing. Uh, your producer, aren't you? Your That's right. art director, your everything. Well, Mr. Wells, What's the film called? It's called Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane, yes. Citizen. Not C-A-I-N. No, K-A-N-E. And this Kane. is, of course, the kindest oh, yes. and most gracious possible thing to do. Mr. Wells is uh, making it possible for me to do what in America is spoken of as a plug. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he understands do this fine old American I don't <laughs> understand these words, yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. You understand the, uh, uh, the value, however. Mr. Wells wants me to tell you that uh, I am, have made a motion picture, and he is kind enough to ask me a leading question concerning it. I it, am looking forward to it. <laughs> you're very kind, sir. It's a, it's a new sort of motion picture with a new uh, method of presentation and a few new uh, technical uh, uh, experiments, a few new new uh, methods of telling a picture, well, not only from the point of view of writing, but of showing it. If I don't uh, misunderstand you completely, I think there'll be a lot of jolly good new noises in it. I hope so. I think a jolly good new noises are what the motion pictures could, stay, could uh, oh, well afford these days. I, I hope you're right, and I hope there are some jolly good new noises. I can think of nothing more desirable in motion picture. I'm all for some really good new noises. Wasn't it you, Mr. Orson Welles, that uh, presented for the first time in modern times plays without scenery and settings in your That's Julius right, Caesar? Yes, and they well, they were not. Well, now uh, there's no yes. such thing as a play without settings because there's no. got to be something behind an actor, and you've got to look at something. Very simple settings. I I had an extraordinary experience once. I saw. Uh, uh, Ellen Terry's son, what was his name? Ellen Terry's son? Yes, his a... production of Hamlet. You mean Gilgood? Uh, no, no, no. Gilgood is a relation of the Terry's. No, no, no. Um, never mind his name for the moment, but I saw Hamlet produced in Russian in Moscow. Oh, the Stanislavski production? Uh, no, no, the... Uh, uh, this I know nothing about. I, I'm sorry. Awfully sorry. Uh, yes. And that was done with screens and That's nothing right. else. It was done in Russian. I know my Hamlet pretty well. And all the time I thought I was listening to the English play. Do you understand that? Yes. Yes. That was a great show. Mr. Ace, you also understand you've written a new book. Yes. I've... Uh, Very great book. ...put a lot of... Orson's a good fellow. <laughs> Sensible, too. <laughs> Discerning, yes. <laughs> yes. No, that's, that's true. Yes, I've tried to 
to the mental attitude of very, two very clever young people, two university uh, students, uh, towards the world, how the world looks to them and what problems they have to face. It's a book for the young, about the young. And about it's a very young book. It's very, thank you. And what is the name I, of your book? I think for a man that I've only met in <laughs> two days, Orson's a very loyal cousin of mine. <laughs> <laughs> what is the name of the book, Mr. Wells? Babes in the, the, the Dark... Babes in the Darkling Wood. Is Not it? Babes in the Wood, but Babes in the Darkling Wood. Because is it it's realistic just... or any fantasy in it? Oh, no, it's quite realistic. They just... Uh, Talk away at their troubles. Most of problems. Mr. Wells' novels are realistic, but it's a, it's a misconception. It's uh, assumed that a man who could say that the air arm of a country is the most important thing about a country in the future, that such a madman must <laughs> certainly write nothing but fantasy. Yes. Well, well, gentlemen, it's with great reluctance that I have to say our time's up. This has been one of the real pleasures of my life. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to Mr. H.G. Wells, the famous British historian and author, and Mr. Orson Wells, the theatrical genius, who met for the first time in San Antonio yesterday and have honored us with their presence tonight. To you, Mr. H.G. Wells, and to you, Mr. Orson Wells, my heartfelt thanks for your kindness.